Well, to begin at the beginning. <laughs> what I want to do with you this evening is kind of give you an introduction to Shunyata in the early tradition and where it's coming from. I'm sure Rob's done a little bit of this with you as well, um, but you'll hear it from different perspectives. When we had this crazy idea of putting together this retreat, and I really do mean crazy, because at first my first question was, how many years have we got <laughs> to actually do this? Because there is so much material on this, so many different practices. Um, I was looking back, I was saying this to Rob earlier on when I arrived, I was looking back at my um, kind of old notes that I used to make, make and I've got three box files on Shunyata alone. <laughs> So that just shows you how much material there is here. However, I'm not going to do all that with you, <laughs> so don't worry about overlay. Really, in many ways, there's a lot of this is a kind of taste, a taste of emptiness, if you like, um, that we'll be going to take you through and you'll be inquiring into as we go through the retreat. The first thing, really, I'd like to say, kind of from a historical perspective in regard to the notion of shunyata, sunyata, if you want a Pali version, shunyata, emptiness, is that it doesn't come along with the Mahayana. Many people think that it's a kind of funny product of Mahayana thinking that the idea of emptiness comes in. It certainly gets spoken about a lot in the Mahayana, but it is not a new idea. By the time we get a little bit further in, we'll be looking at the figure of Nagarjuna, and uh, Nagarjuna obviously being almost the inventor of emptiness. No, he wasn't. What he comes to do is to restate something the Buddha says. And in many ways, Nagarjuna can be seen as somebody who's simply doing that. Really what he's saying is, you didn't listen to what the Buddha actually had to say, so I'm saying it to you a little bit stronger. That's all. In the early canon, as far as we know, you can discern a number of teachings which appear to emanate directly from the Buddha. And the first thing to say about this, because the temptation with all of this material, and my three great big box files and everything else, else is that it can become too heady. <laughs> you know, we can get trapped in our heads with this material. In fact, in the history of Buddhism itself, that's exactly what happened. People ended, and stopped doing practices and ended up talking about it, rather than doing it. Um, and that's the kind of drift into scholasticism. Now, I presume we're not really interested in that. You know, it's interesting in its own right, but it's not what we're here for. Um, Buddhism, in its earliest phases, from the time of the Buddha to his death and immediately after, is entirely practical. It's on the downward slide when it starts to get into that heady stuff. So whatever, you know, and I really want you to engage with the material I'm going to offer in my parts, is to kind of come at it from that practical perspective. This is practical emptiness. You know, emptiness for beginners. This is not scholasticism. Some of the thoughts behind it are difficult. And don't worry if you don't get it at this stage. You really shouldn't worry. It's difficult and it's counterintuitive, some of it. 
Now the Buddha. Let's go back to the time of the Buddha. In past the Pali Canon, you will find the Buddha directly using the Pali equivalent of the term Shunyata, emptiness. And he uses it again and again and again and again, and it's scattered throughout the canon. For those of you who really want to look, there are two texts within the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle-length discourses, which are devoted to Sunyata. Yeah, so it's there, present in the earliest of teachings. And it's really there to counteract one tendency which is the tendency to grasp after ourselves as being something fixed, something permanent. It's to undermine one of those facets, actually, and this is a very practical facet most of us are engaged in, is looking for certainties in our daily lives. Looking for things to remain fixed and unchanging. This is what the Buddha is offering it for, because coupling those two together we end up living in very egotistical worlds. Competing egos. A world which is fashioned and modelled on solidity. Rather than, I know one of the practices which Rob has been sharing with you, which is, of course, of the three marks of existence. Those being, of course, impermanence, not-self, and dukkha. So that's what actually reality is characterised by those three marks. Now, my own personal take on this is actually that the history of Buddhism from the time of the Buddha as being a gradual diminishment of the power of his message. Because what he's actually trying to give you is no hope. (laughs) Sounds strange, doesn't it? Um, He's not offering out false promises. He's saying, how do you live with radical contingency? That's his message. And how do you live a meaningful life, rather than attributing meaning somewhere outside of yourself, how do you live a meaningful life in the face of that radical contingency, in the face of the radical nature of change, of things constantly, constantly changing with no fixity? Now, you can see why people ran scared from that, can't you? It's much easier to run into consolations, into nice consolatory ideas. In Indian thought at the time, they had a wonderful consolatory idea. It was called Brahman, which was this force behind the universe, which eventually ended up in theism, but in the early stages wasn't. It was this thing out of which we were all composed, and it didn't change. And we would all, in some ways, enter back into it. It's a nice little consolatory message. We have our own in the Western world, you know, the, the Middle Eastern religions, which in some senses are religions of hope, consolation. Now, this is not what the Buddha is doing. He is very practical, very pragmatic, and very much a realist. And the challenge of all of this, you know, all of all of the practices which are there within the Buddhist traditions, is to wake you up, to wake you up to what is actually going on. Now, you might not like the idea of radical contingency, of change, of impermanence, but at some point in time it's going to catch up with you. And it catches up with us all. That's going to happen. 
So, in the face of that, again, let me just settle it into your minds at this stage as a question. A, get it. How are you going to get it? How are you going to get this idea? How are you going to get it into our, um, into our heads? How are we going to live the idea of this change? That's the first question. The second is how, when we do get it, can we live meaningfully? That's the other big question that arises out of this. Those are not little questions. I hope you gather that. They're not little questions which we can suddenly get an answer in. They're actually very practically oriented. The first one being, and this is the whole point about practices such as the practices you're engaged in, is to help you get it. I often joke about it. I've done it so many times, a guy has, but it's, in a way it's important. You know, it's like saying, well, everything's impermanent. Well, of course, the whole world's impermanent. All things are changing. You know, people who have had any sort of relationship with Buddhism can rattle these things off really easily. Everything is impermanent. Not me. <laughs> I'm not impermanent. You know, because actually, if you really take that on board, it takes a great deal of courage to take that impermanence on board, to take the, the people and the loved ones around you mm. on board as being impermanent. There's a little story that's told in the Maparinibbana Sutta, which is in the Diganika, the Long Discourses, of the Buddha's passing away, of his dying. You know, in the early tradition, there is no doubt about it. The Buddha dies. You know, he suffers old age and illness. He jokes about it. At times, you know, one time he refers to himself as an old cart held together by straps. <laughs> yeah, uh, but when he's dying, when he's passing away, there is his attendant Ananda. Who's, Ananda's a bit like the fall guy. He's kind of like everybody. He doesn't quite get it at all. And the Buddha's passing away. He's gradually declining, and Ananda's basically leaning on the doorpost, weeping and wailing. And the, and the Buddha says to Ananda, he says, Ananda, have you actually been listening to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, because all compounded things pass away. His final recorded words, as far as, again, we can gather it, the way it's come down through the canon in the Mahabharata Sutta, is all compounded phenomena are impermanent. Strive on. There's not a lot of hope in that. And I don't mean to dispirit you in this. <laughs> but that is the task. You know, it's the striving on in the face of that radical impermanence, that radical contingency that I've referred to. Yeah. Not looking for solace in certainties. Not creeping our way towards permanence in some form. Or other. So just bear in mind those words. All compounded phenomena. All phenomena that have causes and conditions for their existence. Any phenomena of that kind, of which the Buddha said, there is no other kind of phenomena. You, know, you I, and everything in the world are compounded out of causes and conditions. When those causes and conditions change... Whatever is, will change. Yeah. If the forces which sustain life change, become moribund, then death ensues. Yeah. This is the challenge. 
this is really the challenge. I'm kind of setting it right up front. Because this is the challenge of the early tradition. Now, the Buddha speaks about this compounded nature in many, many different forms. And next week, in the talks that I will give, I'm going to explore with you in depth, is dependent origination. Because that is one of the forms in which the Buddha speaks directly about compounded phenomena. He speaks of it in two ways, which I'll go into a little bit of depth with you about, which is a generalised expression of dependent origination. So this happens, that happens. Or this, this actually in the Pali. This, this. Not this, not this. All phenomena are like that. So this comes to be, that will come to be. This ceases to be, that will cease to be. And then a far more complex way of looking at it when he talks about it in terms of our psychology. How we basically structure and pattern our experience. We do it in a very obsessive, compulsive way as well. I keep patterning experience in a similar way. And we'll be looking at this in one of the practices. And I think uh, probably... Rob has already explored this a little with you, which is the relationship between contact, sensation, and craving that arises. Very, very important. One of the most important teachings the Buddha ever gives. Contact. When we contact something through the senses, including the mental sense, when we contact something, this gives rise to a sensation. That sensation is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, both physically and mentally. Now, if you can stop things at that point, all well and good. If you get to the next part of the chain, the arising of craving, you've lost it. (laughs) Everything just happens from there on. And it happens pretty quickly. So it's learning to identify contact and the arise of a feeling, or the arising, literally, of sensation of some form, and trying to drive a wedge between that. When the later tradition, again, starts to look at dependent origination, Nagarjuna uses it as a general formula as an expression of shunyata, of emptiness. Anything that is dependently originated must be empty. So I want to take us a little bit further back into the original teachings, in the early, very much the early teachings. So just bear this in mind. This is not the later stuff. This is the early teachings as far as we can understand it. This expression of emptiness and has a very specific range. It means empty of something. Empty of permanence, empty of substantiality. This is really what it's saying. In doing that, and I just want to place this historically, just for a second or two. In doing that, the Buddha is arguing very much against the tradition that was there in India at the time he lived. Probably predated him by a couple of hundred years, so the thoughts have been around for quite a while was that despite all of this changing phenomena, there was a something which didn't change. 
that is the expression I used earlier on, the idea of Brahman, or Brahman, as I should pronounce. This idea that there was something that was not changing. This was your solace. This is your consolation. That despite all this stuff that's going on, which was referred to as Maya, which was referred to as illusion, in other words, all of that took place in the temporal world was illusory. And you could content yourself with the idea that once you get beyond the illusory nature of change and all the things that we see going on around us, you could get back to something which was unchanging. In fact, you were very much part of that thing that was unchanging. And effectively what the Buddha is saying, and for those who want to put this in, in the context of a literature, this is called the Upanishads, the two oldest of which are there in the Buddha's time. In the Upanishads, this is what is spoken about, this idea of an unchanging substratum upon which all change, in a sense, is reflection, or projected. It's just projected onto it. And this becomes known as maya, illusion. Everything that was temporal and changing was simply illusory. Only that which did not change was real. Now, again, I want you to reflect on these things because, in a way, that's naturally what we're searching for. People search for the real. You've come across it, very much part of New Ageism. I'm searching for the real me. (laughs) (laughs) Where is it? (laughs) Where is that real me? I'm searching for... eternity, that which doesn't change, for God, an unchanging phenomena, for some kind of fixity. The Greeks were doing it, so it's come down into our culture. Plato was talking about everything that was, you know, all of the temporality that we see around us being, again, unreal, almost a sickness that we were born into, and then you know, when Socrates commits suicide, and when he's forced to commit suicide, he's going to the unchanging, to the real, you know, the essential things. Now, we might not do it in that kind of philosophical manner, um, but those ideas have you know, basically been pushed through our society, through our culture. The idea that the real is associated with that which doesn't change. Only a real relation, let's put it in very ordinary terms, only a real relationship can occur when that other person doesn't change. (laughs) Sounds very odd, doesn't it? I can only have be a relationship if I know who you are and that you're not going to change on me. It's very odd stuff. So you're looking for certainties within other people. Looking for certainties within ourselves when that, you know, that question becomes, you know, I'm searching for the real me. Then I'm searching for something again which is unchanging, you know, something which isn't you know, going to come and go in and out of existence. So we speak about our character traits as if they are completely fixed. You know, when you have them, you get on this kind of high horse and go, well, that's the way I am. It implies, of course, I can't possibly change if that's the way I am. 
Have you ever said this? <laughs> I know I have in the past. You know, that, that's, that's the way I do things. It implies you can't do it any other way. You know, or, I really hate peas. I'm a pea hater. That's my natural... <laughs> now, I'm sending this up for a purpose, which is to show how, how these ideas get associated. You know, that we fix, try to pinpoint, pin down, I should say, we try to pin down things for ourselves and for others. Now, the Buddha is coming along and trying to explode the whole of that mythology. And this is a mythology. But it's a very difficult one to, in some senses, explode. Because it's so deeply ingrained, the tendency to want to go down the route of fixity and certainty. Even to place the burden of responsibility further and further and further back as to what is actually you know, the, the unchanging there. The early tradition starts to do this. So we get, again, one of the Buddha's primary teachings, in some senses, again, showing us the lack of fixed nature. That teaching is the teaching of the Kundas, the Skandas, the five personality aggregates. Any talk about a meaningful self devolves down, and I'll explore this with you tomorrow, or not tomorrow, the day after, devolves down onto five processes. And the Buddha is attempting to show that none of those processes, because they are processes, are fixed. Things are coming and going in and out of existence continuously. So when I look for, not joking this time, the real self, I can't find a real self. All I can find is five interdependent processes. That is all. And those processes themselves can be broken down into finer processes, even more subtle processes. In many ways, the Buddha can be considered to be the first of the process thinkers. Whilst everybody else, both, you know, in the Eastern world and the Western world, but tending to look for things that didn't change as being real, the Buddha is beginning to explore things in terms of the the way they operate, the way that they are actually functioning. So he's beginning to explore that whole region and notion of process. You can't get this so much in English, but I I often say to groups like yourself, when you begin to look at the original languages, many, many of the words that the Buddha is using are verbs. So when we start talking about the self, the self isn't a thing, it's a verb. So it's selfing. Sounds very ugly in English, doesn't it? But you can do this in some of the original languages. And it doesn't come through because we're mostly talking in nouns in English. So when you begin to explore, instead of finding a something, you find, and this is another way, perhaps even of translating shunyata, emptiness, you find no thing. You don't find nothing. You find no thing. Here, thing means fixity. So you have no thingness. So the primary way 
are beginning to attempt to, in some senses, uncover this radical change, this no-thingness, is through the nature of the self. How does it function? Not what is it. How does it function? Those are the questions that the Buddha is asking and getting us to ask about ourselves. Now, you're not going to get this very easily just by talking about it. You have to examine it. I remember, and again I've shared this a number of times, even in this room, I remember years and years and years and years ago having to go through a whole exercise when I was in the monasteries in South India and it was with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors. Um, and he was taking us through this, and you think this is long, protracted series of questions, such as, where is the self? Is it here? Is it there? Is it in your big toe? Is it at the tip of your nose? Is it in the follicles of your hair? Is it in this? Is it in that? And, that? and, and we were getting rather irate after having done this for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. <laughs> And I remember saying to him, you know, why are we doing this? <laughs> and he said, well, you know what it's like when you lose your purse, your wallet. What do you mean? <laughs> you know what happens when you've lost your purse or your wallet. What do you do? He said, don't you look in every possible place it might be until you eventually found out you've lost it. So this is analogous to that. You're actually beginning to look you know, in every place it might possibly be until you convince yourself that it's not there in the way that you think it's there. You know, so instead of a self as thing, I end up being actually, in a, in a far more radical and dynamic way, I am this changing phenomenon. Actually, that's the good news, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. That really is the good news. I mean, I, talk, I gave you the fairly bleak start to it. <laughs> Things can only get better from then on. You know, how do you live this radical contingency? But no, the exciting thing about this is, is now you have the possibility of being able to direct that change. Because if I am this fixed thing who really is a pee-hater, <laughs> you know, if I really am that fixed thing, there's no possibility of movement or change or opening or anything. Now, let's put it a little bit more seriously. If I really, really am a radically bad person, if I'm a radically bad person, I'm stuck with being it, if there is fixity. Yeah. In other words, if the essence of this self is bad or good or indifferent or whatever it might be, I'm stuck with it. And the Buddha actually is saying, no, you're not. Change is always possible. In fact, the early tradition, as most of the Buddhist traditions are that arise much later on, are peppered with stories about the most, well, the greatest wrongdoers. You have the first serial killer, Angulimala, you know, going around collecting fingers for some weird practice, probably in India at that time. Yeah, you have Angulimala doing that, and what happens? He changes. He becomes, in the, old, the, the idea of, ideal of the early tradition, he becomes an arahat. And really, it doesn't matter whether these stories are literally true or not. The whole point about them that's being made in these stories is 
that from the perspective of emptiness, change is always possible. In fact, change will continue to occur anyway. Directed in the right way, with the right sorts of practices, you know, nudged in one direction or nudged in the other direction, basically determines whether you're going to end up doing wholesome things or unwholesome things. But at least you have the choice from this perspective, knowing that you are no thing. Now the early tradition also went into trying to understand these processes on finer and finer and finer bases. The Buddha himself, probably as far as we can determine again, gave a number of teachings. We can certainly say, obviously, he teaches the ennobling truths, the truths of the of dukkha, the inquiry into it, its cessation, and its path leading to its cessation. That seems to be fairly certain. The teaching of anatta, of not-self. Not no-self. There's a a lot hangs on a little consonant, um, again, which I'll mention tomorrow night. That little consonant is all important. Yeah. Yeah, I always have this picture of somebody saying, well, I had a self yesterday, but now it's gone. It's not like they've got a big self-shaped hole. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. It's saying, well, what is there if there is not a self in the way we think it is? What's going on? So that teaching is definitely attributable (coughs) to the historical Buddha. The teaching of dependent origination is so, so important. It's probably the most important teaching in the whole of Buddhism, let alone early Buddhism. In many ways, the whole history of what follows in many of the traditions is a way of being trying to understand what the Buddha is talking about in terms of dependent origination. And it's a relation, I do point out, of dependence is not of causality. You know, one thing supporting another. You know, the picture, the image that really is there within, again, the original language is something like cornstooks actually supporting each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the weights lean onto each other. So it's a relationship of dependences that pattern our experience, pattern the world that we see around us. It's so important, um, he chastises, poor old Ananda gets it in the neck again. You know, when Ananda says to the Buddha one day, you know, this dependent origination stuff, I think I've got it. Yeah, it's really clear. And the Buddha says, think again, Ananda. <laughs> yeah. um, this teaching is profound. <laughs> what he's meaning by that is it's just damn difficult. It really is. And actually, even the stuff that I'm telling you will, and will tell you about dependent origination is nothing, really. Until you get it in your experience. Until you begin to see it in terms of what is going on for yourself. I don't think he's really chastising Ananda for saying that he's got it intellectually. It's not that difficult to get intellectually. To get it in terms of actually seeing what happens when I have a simple sensation, say, in the body... And how I try to avoid it, push it away, shift my posture. Um, perhaps, oh, go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> try to hold on to it. 
that is just the beginning of that exploration. That's starting to get it. You know, if we could get this stuff intellectually, it would be very easy. Because actually it's not that difficult intellectually, most of it. A little bit difficult if you're coming at it anew, you know, if you haven't heard it before, but you know, on a number of repetitions it starts to become clearer. But that's not the point. If you don't get it in terms of your actual day-to-day experience, and that is extremely difficult because it's happening so quickly. I don't find myself usually in this position, which is, um, I see the arising of desire for chocolate. (laughs) Or whatever it might be. What you find yourself is eating a chocolate bar. (laughs) You know, or whatever it is that you're engaging in. You You don't see it from that distance perspective. You don't see that desire arising. So what are you doing in the meditative procedures is you're beginning to give yourself time and space to see that arising so that you might actually be able to catch it out when it's happening in ordinary life, in day-to-day existence. It's a training, a training of being able to see. And one phrase that echoes throughout these early teachings um, that the Buddha uses again and again and again is he who is liberated both knows and sees. Knowing isn't simply good enough. Yeah. If that was the case, I mean, there'd be a lot of academic Buddhist scholars who should be liberated by now, but this isn't the case, I can assure you. Yeah. They might have all the knowledge about it, but have never engaged in the seeing, the seeing practices that go with it. So it's learning and training yourself to see. Learning to see actually has a very simple expression in the early teachings. It's called mindfulness. Beginning to become mindful of what is occurring, because it's only with this awakening of awareness that we can begin to change, to see alternatives, to see possibilities of not immediately I get a contact with a certain sensation of then ending up in a form of craving for it. You know, that whole scenario is very deterministic. It means every time I see something in the shop window I like, I'm salivating. Like some dog. So these teachings are very, very much part of the early tradition. In a sense, they're what are being investigated and extrapolated in the tradition as it starts to grow. Now, from our point of view, what we need to understand is those early foundational teachings. To really come to grips with what goes on later, you need to understand them from the perspective of experience, and to a degree from the way that they arise in the Buddha's context in the context of his overall approach and strategy. Because it is a strategic approach to dealing with life, to dealing with the problems that we have. Basically, the Buddha says to everybody, you've got a problem. That's his starting point. You've got a problem. That problem's called dukkha. Here's some ways to deal with it. Here's some ways to investigate it. Here's some ways to see how you create it for yourself. And he goes on to suggest, as I've already outlined very briefly, that part of it might be the way that you're looking at yourself. 
Part of it might be the ways that you're investing things around you with permanence which they don't have and will never possess. Most of what is there is like grasping at water, trying to hold on to it. And it just runs through your fingers. On the Buddha's death, a whole tradition of investigation grew up. And it's a very, very profound tradition, and actually one that, even particularly in the Western context, doesn't get explored very often. And this is a, context, this is a whole area of Buddhist thought and practice which is known as Abhidharma, or Abhidhamma in the Pali. The Abhidharma means higher dharma. It's literally what it, what it means. Um, this was purportedly outlined by the Buddha in his teachings overall. Now, if you're familiar at all with any of the suttas, and I don't know how many of you have delved into them, but if you look in the suttas, all of the discourses that the Buddha gives are all contextual. They're often somebody coming up and asking a question. Might be that the Buddha takes it upon himself to discourse to the monks and the nuns who are around him on particular topics. That's the content, basically, of the Nikaya part of the Pali Canon. All of that sort of material is very, very much contextualised. It's also very, in a sense, disorganised. Because if you look through in any of these um, major works of the early Buddhist canon, then you'll find something like, well, the long discourses. Well, they're just arranged by length. That's all. <laughs> Not by topic. <laughs> or the middle-length discourses. Well, that means they're a little bit shorter than the big ones. <laughs> or they might be connected discourses. Connected here means they do have some relationship from topic to topic. Or, finally, there is the discourses which are numerical. This is the Buddha saying, well, I think there's one thing that's really important, then there's two things that are really important, then there's three things, and it goes up to nine. <laughs> you know, so it's just arranged in terms of you know, him saying which things are important. So they're not arranged in any systematic order, and it's really the Abhidhamma tradition that begins to arrange the teachings in a systematic order, decontextualizing them. This is the repository of the psychology, the profound psychology. If nothing else, the Buddhist tradition for its two and a half thousand years has done nothing else than study the mind uh, and the way the mind works. Here, Most of that can be found in depth not to say it's not there in the sort of material, it's just much more difficult to uproot it. It's found in depth in the Abhidharma. Now, there's, in the Theravada Abhidharma, there are seven books of it. And if you ever have a, you know, if you ever have an insomnia, I could always recommend one for you. Because they are so turgid as to be unbelievable. Um, but they contain all this material. Now, I don't want to go into the depths of the material, but again, just to show you something that's really related to what we are going to be engaged in, which is it has a methodology. And the, and the methodology is based on the same methodology that the Buddha outlines in, say, let's take the Khandas, and his discourse on the Khandas. That methodology is to take something that appears to be unitary and to show its composite. 
So in other words, you take this experience of what appears to be a self, you know, and let's take a self in an ordinary situation, a self that's angry. It really feels it's one, united in its anger. You know, everything there is kind of grouped in here on that anger, devolved onto it. So it's taking that which appears in our experience even, forcibly in our experience sometimes, to be unitary and to show its composite. And therefore this idea of a fixed, unified self, when we begin to explore the various functions, and again I hear mean explore not in just intellectually but in our meditations, when we begin to explore it we begin to see in fact, it's composed of many different elements. You know, so there's no meaningful talk about a self without a body. There's no meaningful talk without feelings. There's no meaningful talk about dis- without discrimination. Or without something like karmic formations, which actually just are habits. Or without consciousness. And that's the simplest form. And each of those themselves, Each of those five khandhas, and this is the methodology, if you really want to say, well, I don't exist in the way that I thought I existed, but now I have five of them instead of one. So I'm going to put all my attention on those five. And so what the Abhidharma tradition does is it breaks those down even further and shows that consciousness is composed out of many, many different types of consciousness. If you want to take one reading, 121 different forms. If you want to take, you know, what's going on in terms of the formations, well, you can show that it's actually many, many different forms, types of formations that are going on here. The body itself is composite. And again, this is process. That we're beginning to see ourselves as processes and the world around us as processes. And this is actually quite exciting. You begin to see this. I'm not saying it's not scary as well, but it's actually quite exciting. It's quite literally liberating. We're starting to move away, once we begin to see this, from confusion. Now, the starting point, in a way, but the one we can't actually get back to, of dependent origination, is something known as avidya, or avidya, which is ignorance. Actually, it could be translated as confusion, too. Simply confused. Yeah, here's a little scenario. I've been taken from where I am and dumped down in a country, and I haven't got a map and I don't know my way around. That's called life. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. There's a lovely expression actually the philosopher, uh, German philosopher Heidegger uses, which he says is, "We're thrown into this world." That's how we start to experience it, having been thrown into it. You know, no wonder we're confused. We're thrown into this world, and we actually haven't really got a map to find our way around at all. And so, in our confusion, we start to identify things which actually are painful with being pleasant. We start to hold on to the idea of fixity when all things are changing. And so on and so forth. I'll explore this as we go through in much more depth. So we're just confused. But I can't get back to that fundamental confusion because I'm still devolved and concentrated at this moment in time. 
on trying to make sense in the best possible way I can. Now, how we make sense of it is, again, the attribution of all sorts of qualities to things that they don't possess, and to ourselves. I mentioned one of them. Seeing that which is actually going to cause you dukkha as being happy, pleasant. Now, there's a lovely image that's used in one of the suttas, where the Buddha says this misattribution, and remember, we are all, in the Buddha's sense of the term, obsessive-compulsive neurotics. We keep doing the same things again and again and again, even though it doesn't actually make us happy. That's where we find ourselves. And that is actually likened with a very graphic image in the suttas, where the Buddha says it's a bit like a dog waiting outside of a butcher's shop, and the butcher throws the dog a bone, which he says is just smeared with blood. It's got not an ounce of flesh on it. The dog chews and chews and chews and chews and chews and chews and keeps on chewing, although it's not getting any nutriment whatsoever from it. This image of the dog is again used to describe the nature of the self. The, the self, seen as this fixed thing, is a bit like a post being driven into a ground, and the dog is tethered to it, and all it does is it goes round and round and round and round this post. So there's a circularity to experience. There's this misattribution of things that are going to make us happy, i.e. give us some nutriment, some nutrition, feed us in some way, that don't. And we keep on doing those things again and again and again, compulsively. But we don't do them because we are bad people. We do them because we're confused. That's the whole thing, and that's worth remembering. This is not just a simple moral, this is not sort of moral finger-wagging. This is actually to make it clear that actually the search that you're engaged in, even when we're screwing up, is actually trying to find some contentment, some peace, some happiness in this world. But because we're confused, because we identify things as possessing fixity, just as an example, then we suffer. We are dissatisfied. And the whole tenor of the early teachings, and I'll draw this to a close and see if there are any questions, the whole tenor of the early teachings is really to get us to look at that. I would actually say the later teachings are as well, but I'm concentrating specifically this evening just on those early teachings. Begin to get us to look at that. So instead of seeing things as being possessed by self, whatever goes on, as being us, you know, you have that uh, shop, don't they? Over here, toys are us. You know, actually, thoughts are us. <laughs> That's immediate identification, isn't it? Thoughts are us. Whatever goes through my head, I have to take terribly seriously because it's me. You know? <laughs> so you give these thoughts, this passing stream of thoughts, just arising and passing away and arising and passing away. You give them a seriousness and a, a depth and a weight that they don't deserve at all. Because I think it, it has to be important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, it's not. Most of them ought to come with a little label saying, just passing through. <laughs> <laughs> That's all they do. So, actually, cut to really what the Buddha's saying about this is actually beginning, and this again is 
the practice of shunyata. Beginning to see what arises and passes as being not I, not me, and not mine. So you're taking the ego sting out of it, of attributing those to being me. And think about that just for a second or two. If you can actually see those thoughts that are passing through your mind of not being I, not being mine, and not being me. They would cease to persecute you. Often people feel persecuted by their thoughts. This ruminative spiral of thinking that people get into. You've got a problem, try to think your way out of it. You won't get anywhere, mostly. Just make it worse. Because you identify with thinking rather than being. That is what the Buddha is talking about. So the little strategy for that is to begin to disassociate these things as being me. And to have that possessive taken away from them. Now these are all practical dimensions of shunyata. Those thoughts are, what are they? They are empty. They are empty of substantiality. In other words, they're empty of the weight that we give them, often. They're merely dependent arisings. That is all. And so, in these very profound early teachings, the Buddha, in some senses, is setting the task before us. Now, because people don't get things very easily, then you get the whole history of Buddhism arising. (laughs) Which is, I wonder what you really meant. (laughs) Did he really mean it that way? And so you get a lot of reflection, a lot of ways of trying to think your way into what actually are very profound, simple intellectual teachings, but profoundly difficult to begin to see. I'm going to finish there and see if there are any questions that have arisen. We'll have a question and answer session tomorrow anyway, so don't worry if there's you know, nothing springs the mind immediately. Um, but I just want to open it up and see if there's anything. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people in society generally, because they're not exposed to any of this, they think it's the best they're ever going to do. They'll yeah. string together all these experiences, wherever they are. And yeah, they, they might satisfy a little bit for a while. Mm. Gone, and then you've got to chase another one and another one. And they string as many of those together as they can and then they die. You know, and, and I think a lot of people just don't know, like you're saying, they don't know that there is any more than that. And that we're lucky that right. we even know, you know, because then we can start to do something. But I don't think a lot of people realise that there is anything else. I think that's absolutely right. Again, I'd really emphasise it's not that there's lots of bad people out there doing nasty yeah. things. I mean, there and are the a few. pushes it out. The whole of our society, not just media. Yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. Yeah. The whole of our society is, is projecting a particular way of satisfying yeah. us, of trying to substantiate yourself, make yourself real people. You know, just look at something advertising. It says, you know, you know, you're going to be somebody if you have this. You're going to be happy, fulfilled, for well, at least for ten minutes anyway. Well, yeah, well, it's tricky because <laughs> some of these things are, you know, enjoyable for a time to a yeah. point. You know, so it's. So I still get tricked by it, you know. It's even though I've done quite a lot of study in this, you know. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's easy to be a bit lazy as well, and just think, oh, I'll just have that, and then I'll feel better for a while. And that, you're sort of working against it. Then. 
I think we underestimate the power of habit. Yeah. The habits, the way they kick in. Particularly when people feel under stress. Mm. Yeah. That's when they're going to kick in very easily. You know, um, just even simple things of, well, I, I deserve it. Again, one of those adverts again. You deserve it. Mm. You're yeah. worth it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Those immediately arise, and they're the kind of the ways of, again of consoling yourself. That actually, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I can have this, yeah. and they're just habits that come in because those are the things that, we, in a way, we know we're very conditioned towards, yeah. and we still, in a way, still believe somewhere in the depths of our psyche that those things are actually going to make you happy. Yeah. It's a mythology, and it's a big. Deeply sold mythology. It comes from outside, a lot of it's self-generated as well. But that, in a sense, is what's being exploded in, in these teachings. It's not that it wants to take pleasure away from you. Pleasure's fine. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. As long as you understand pleasure as being transitory. It's passing. Yeah. If you understand pleasure as transitory, then you cease to want to try and fix it. And what I mean by that is prolong it. You know, so I'm feeling, oh, I'm getting pleasure out of this. Then I will try to grab hold of it. And how do you try to grab hold of it? By doing it again. Mm. And, of course, the first time you did it didn't require so much as the second time. Now, the second time will require a little bit more than the first, and the third will require more than the second. And you get this escalation of having to do something. It's a bit like an addictive tendency, having to increase the dosage of whatever the substance might be or the pleasure might be in order to get the same return on it that's what we're hooked into a lot of the time we don't get the same return no i suppose one of the one of the analogies i often use about this is it's actually a bit like the pop song the desperate pop song you really really like it and you play it again and again and again and again and again and again and it ends up being a horrible noise in your head that you can't get rid of <laughs> you know, um, because it's that repetitiveness yeah. we are natural repeaters we're born to repeat but it's in in a sense the investment and this is why it's um, the teaching of Shunyar is really beginning to explode this is the idea that that thing whatever it is has the power to make me happy it doesn't. Yeah. It's other words, it's this constant looking outside of ourselves for a something. Yeah, notice the way I'm using this thing, something fixed. That beautiful thing has the power to make me happy. And that's the mythology. It will give you pleasure. You know, and that pleasure might last two minutes, might last two days, two hours, whatever. You know, it has varying returns on it. But that is all. It doesn't have the power to make you content. It doesn't have the power to make you happy in this world. That can only come from within. That can only come by discovering what's really going on. Yeah. commenting about the fact that all that we talked about is popular culture, you know, and, and that is more than 
true. But at the same time, uh, I think there is something very interesting that's coming with the modern thinking. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of philosophy actually that's taking exactly those same kind of understanding and science has gotten us very used to this idea that the whole world is groundless mm. and you know people like uh, Francisco Varela or mm. other thinkers and all the modern thing about relativity and, and somehow I think you know Western uh, thinking is actually getting there. Mm. Well, the popular culture is far from even having an idea that some people are thinking about it, mm. but perhaps in the next decades it will sink down, no? Perhaps. My, my only hesitation in, in totally agreeing with that, I agree with you, a lot of Western thinking, and certainly a lot of Western science, in, is beginning to come parallel with some ideas that you find in Buddhist thinking. Here. My only hesitation in totally subscribing to that is the difference is that the Buddhist tradition hasn't just thought these ideas, it's developed practices to investigate them. That's the difference. Yeah. So in other words, instead of just having as an intellectual thought that this might be the case and change your life accordingly... That's the big part of it. Yeah, that's a big difference. But yeah. at least the people cannot say like they used to with religion, you know, oh, this means absolutely nonsense, you mm. know. At least now, intellectually speaking, there is no obstacle. Intellectually, there's no obstacle. But I think the big problem, and I think obviously this is why people find themselves in centres like this, is there isn't a range of practices in the West that really, um, really actually begin to help you to investigate some of these Thought experiments, actually, a lot of them are just thought experiments. Um, and so what the Buddhist tradition really is giving you is a way, practical way of changing your life through, if you like, an introspective psychology that begins to really see what the nature of what is going on. And I think that's the big, tradition, that's the big difference for me between the traditions. Yeah. Not to denigrate the Western, because I think the Western does have a lot of parallel thoughts, a lot of profound insight, but it just doesn't have the practices. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just meant, you know, perhaps the Buddhist teachings have a chance to really spread through the West because, justement, there is no intellectual difference. So mm. at least uh, people can say, oh, well, yeah, if it is this way, philosophically speaking, then, yeah, why not sort of adopt mm. the, the, the practice of Buddhism? Yes, I mean, it's, it's another interesting point, I think, here is that, and I would make this very strongly, the Buddha isn't a philosopher. He's actually anti-philosophical. Mm. Um, most of the thinking, and particularly the, the topic we're investigating in this retreat, most of what we're investigating, in a sense, is anti-philosophical. And I mean that in the real Greek sense of philosophy. Because the Greek sense of philosophy was to discover the unchanging. It was to, to investigate the metaphysical. You know, that which was literally beyond the physical, beyond the physical world. The Buddha was exploding the myth of the metaphysical as being a solution to our problems. That really is quite different. He's a very, very practical thinker. There's nothing, and this is why I started off with the early calendar tonight, just trying to give you this brief overview, because there is nothing within 
the early canon, um, and the Pali canon is just one part of it, there's nothing within that that isn't practically oriented. The Buddha is saying, these are the strategies that you can use to change your life, and they're not thought experiments. Dependent origination isn't a theory. Unfortunately, when you're teaching it, it sounds like a theory. But what he's actually trying to do is to get you to investigate this in terms of your own experience. That is quite a different project, I think, from what has actually happened in, well, 2,000-odd years of, of Western philosophy, for example. It's quite a different project. There's not many of those thinkers have actually changed their lives in accordance with what they discovered. You know, the Buddha says, I've discovered this. Out of this experience, I became awakened. You too can do it. Yeah. That was a huge, huge difference between them. Yeah. And I, again, don't want to denigrate the Western. I just think it's, it's a slightly different project. Yeah. It's making me think of a talk that Susan Blackmore gave recently at the Liverpool festival of free thinking mm-hmm. and free will, the illusion oh, yeah. of free will. Mm-hmm. And she said that she talked to various philosophers and said, do you believe in free will? And they said, no. Mm-hmm. And she said, do you live differently? And they said, no, I live as if I had free will. Mm-hmm. You know, they hadn't made that jump. Yes, that's right. So. Yeah. I, think, I think this has always been true. Um, you, know, you have philosophers in, well, actually both traditions, both East and West, you say the world really isn't out there. You know, the world is in us, but they behave exactly the same as everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is called idealism, philosophical idealism. You know, even its worst extreme, the world is me, but I still behave exactly the same. Now, the big difference, and I was trying to make everybody aware of the big difference, is the Buddha lived a very different life in accordance with what he discovered. And you know that whole tradi- this whole tradition is about getting you to discover so that you too can lead a different life, and not just mean have it as an idea. Because otherwise, you know, you could go down to the library and go to a house and read all those books that are on, on the shelves. And if I merely remain at the intellectual level, then you would probably just go on exactly the same. And I think this is also teachings. You know, how many times you've been to Dharma teachings? You hear it again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> How many times does it really get through? And I'm not wishing to put anybody down here, but you know, often it doesn't, does it? You know, it's almost like entertainment. <laughs> what do you see the changes being? You know, how, how do you see the, the practice having a real effect on your being? Mm-hmm. Well, let's just take one very simple thing. Um, does it make you kinder? Does it make you a little bit more patient with yourself and with others? You know, these are the very practical things. I, in many ways, and this is, I'm speaking very personally here, for many ways for me, the practice really isn't having an effect unless those things are happening. Now, it might not be massive, but unless there's a reorientation occurring, and, the and some of it might be just that I try to be a little bit kinder, even if it's not naturally arising. Yeah. Because I know that's a better way to live in this world. And things like that. That's where I see you know, really taking having a practical effect. Yeah. And I think there are many different strategies to get there. Mm. Yeah, this is one. This is one particular orientation that we're exploring in this retreat. 
ask a follow-up, which is about free will. <laughs> I think I've heard you use free won't. Mm. Be, you know, we were talking actually about intention and the awareness that tension just arises out of nowhere. It's not an intention mm. <laughs> in the way that we normally would use the word. Mm. And when you use the phrase about directing the change, and this is relating to how do we live our lives then with this knowledge of mm. radical contingency. Mm. Can you can you unpick a bit for me there about? Yes, it's. I'll go back actually to the real true meaning of the word, which we usually translate as meditation. And actually, I think it gives a very, very, very. You've probably heard me say this before, and some of you will undoubtedly have heard me say it before. But I think it's important. Is the actual word that's used, as many of you will know, is bhavana. That's the actual word that's used. That's usually translated as meditation. However, meditation makes it sound like it only takes place on a cushion. Bhavana can take place anywhere, because it's cultivation. It's cultivating different ways of being in this world. Now, part of that cultivation might be, as as you're saying, free won't. I won't go down those roads. Because I'm now cultivated awareness and can see the destructive side of certain forms of behaviour. So I choose to live slightly differently. And I think it's the power of that cultivation when we see it in every dimension of life. And it actually really comes in line with your question as well. In every dimension of life. It doesn't just take place if you're doing a retreat on the cushion. It takes place in the way that you eat your food, the way that you walk, the way that you, you... um, engage with other people, even in a silent manner, and things like this. In the ordinary world, Bhavana can take place in the workplace, in that cultivation. Um, and that's what I really see as being the core of this. It's those simple reorientation practices. Now, this is a big one that we're dealing with in this retreat, Shunyata, beginning to explode the myth of stasis beginning to explode the myth of fixity, yeah, of certainty, of, I don't know, metaphysical consolation in some way. Yeah. That's just one reorientation practice. Now, I know because I talked about it with Rob on the phone when we were setting up the retreat, you know, that, the, that that practice on its own could end up being really cold. It could end up being really cold. It could, as I said, one possibility can end up in is the in, simply the intellectual. Now, that's not the intention behind it. So what do you do? And I know the recommendation is do some samatha. Do some metta as well to soften this practice that can be quite hard. You don't want to end up as a block of stone. You don't want to end up unfeeling. So these cultivation practices are actually there um, to aid each other. And there are a range of them that we engage in. Some of them on the cushion, some of them not on the cushion. So I don't know if that responds to your question. I mean, it's really, that's the way I see it, that that this is at the heart of what we're doing. We're cultivating new ways of awareness, new ways of being, new ways of seeing. And some of those will be about restraint. 
just restraining ourselves from doing things. You know, so we're always talking about free will, aren't we? And there's free wills all over the place. It's huge. I mean, this, in Western tradition is the problem of free will. You know, what do I do with it? You know, but it never talks about those restraints which are needed. Yeah. Now, sometimes the Buddha says, just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Even if you like doing it, don't do it because it's not good for you. <laughs> Yeah. And that is a cultivation practice in itself, cultivating the idea of not doing something, even if I enjoy it. <laughs> now we're not very good. We're not very good in the Western world. I think at something um, that's built into that tradition, which is called renunciation. <laughs> that early tradition was a renunciate tradition. Yeah. So that's kind of my response to what you're saying. Let's try and unpack it a little. I kind of find it so sort of perplexing and sort of fascinating that reality is the way that it is, and we have the ability to be able to see that, and yet we're all hardwired exactly the opposite way, and it and it's such a rare thing. And we're sort of, sort of sat here talking about, and it all makes sense, but and yet it just can't, can't be seen. It's just as I know, it kind of mm. struck me whilst you were talking. Mm. You know, it's 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 this this hardwired search for fixity for a goal. I guess is the ultimate expression of that. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just incredible, really. Yes, and I think that's why you know the, there's a sharedness about the problem as well, isn't there? That's the other thing. You know, um, part of the sangha in this is a sharedness, is a, is, you know, sharing the problem that we all have the problem, or have different manifestations of it. Um, but it was all the same problem, is that we are looking for things to produce something for us which are never going to do it. Yeah. As you say, almost hardwired in looking in certain places. And really, for me, that's just an expression not so much of the hardwiring, just on the, the unskillful nature of the way that we search. And we search with the only tools that we have. That's, if you like, the hardwired bit. So we look for it in the wrong places, misidentify again and again and again and again. So we end up in very similar places, yeah. and that place is dissatisfaction. Yeah. End up in dukkha. Yeah. Yet we don't have to. <laughs> That's just the, this is the whole thing. I mean, we don't have to do that. <laughs> search for certainty. We don't like living in uncertainty. Yet, in many ways, the world screams at you uncertainty. We live in uncertain times. Who would have believed what's happened over the last you know, four months or so? You know, this wonderful Western world going on in its way, you know, the capitalist system thriving and everything, and bang, down it goes. Nobody would believe that. Really, if you said to them, you know, perhaps a few force, people with foresight might have seen something like that happening, but the bulk of people would not see it coming. Yeah. 
because we look for something which is stable. And yeah, almost the starting place of where I, you know, where I began this evening. Yeah, everything is radically unstable. Yeah. Shut your eyes and see what's going on in your mind to see that. <laughs> we are radically unstable. Yeah. There is nothing really fixed and certain you know, about ourselves. How we like to believe in it. It's a nice mythology. And give, as we go through, I'll give some examples about how we do this. Yeah. Is it true to say that not only what we are aware of is unstable, but also the thing that is trying to be aware or is aware is also unstable? So, you know, codependent arising, mm. as in the thing itself and the, the object and the thing looking at the objects are both empty. <coughs> yeah, both, both are empty. Yeah. Both are empty of any... This is changing, this is changing, and yeah. there's nothing. <laughs> Things change at different rates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, mountains change a lot slower than we do. Yeah. Yeah. So they appear to have a stability that we don't. You know, objects in the room, tables and chairs and benches and that, don't change as much mm. or as quickly as we do. I'm just thinking more about, say person and their experience, or a person, whatever you want to call it, the person having the experience will feel different from day to day or moment to moment, different contexts make them feel different, mm. as well as the experience in front of them, you know, of itself changing, and then those two inter- interacting, which are, you know, it's just sort of multi-fractaling mm. out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you, if, you think, if you think about a basic fundamental condition for how you're going to experience a day is your mood. Yeah. With one mood, you get one world. With another mood, you get the other world, another world. So you've actually got multiple worlds mm. because you're always in a mood. Yeah. You're never not in a mood. <laughs> your mood's affected by all these other things around you. And it's affected by... The, and also affected by everything else. So it's just constantly in massive flux. That's right. Yet, out of that, we try to construct a stable world. So you're trying to construct something stable out of something which is radically unstable. Mm. Now... That's like trying to build, I don't know, a house without foundations on shifting sand. You know, the walls might hold up for a little while, but then they fall flat. And actually, that's the experience of a lot of people. I'm putting it metaphorically, but that's the experience of a lot of people. You try and hold something rigid in your life for a certain amount of time until the conditions so radically undermine it that it can only come crashing down. Now, this might be... And, yeah, and this is a serious thing. It might be the idea of the permanence of another. Yeah. And when something like death comes along and radically robs you of that, your world has fallen apart. Yeah. Those are the sort of things that happen. There can be lots of other things as well, but that's a most you know, very serious example of it. So your world is radically unstable. about uh, the uh, awakening of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. Can we sort of uh, count on the fact that uh, 
that's part of the human potential? Yes. So that's maybe one certainty. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a certainty, that's for sure. <laughs> it's a possibility. It's a possibility. But the awakening, remember, isn't awakening into some sort of metaphysical real. It's, a, it's, a, it's literally a waking up. You know, when you actually, again, look at the original term, you know, Bodhi, Buddha, these are all cognate terms in the original language, and it means to, to wake up. And what you're waking up to is suchness, the way it is. Nothing else. Yeah, but I envision it to be uh, uh, a state of being that's pretty much as radically different uh, between my ordinary consciousness and uh, my dog's consciousness. Hmm. It's radically different, yeah. It's, of course it's radically different. And the radical difference here, is, and this again is very much part of the early tradition that's seen slightly different in the later tradition, is in a way that awakening experience, um, if you look at the Sutta material, is really nothing other than equanimity in the face of contingency. That's what it is. It's being having a mind which isn't thrown all over the place simply by this happening and that happening and this changing and that changing and that changing and this changing and there's no st stability here at all. But the, result. the result is very different. <laughs> I think the result is quite phenomenal yeah. in terms of knowing yes. and loving. Well, it opens up all those other possibilities, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's, I think, that's what the Buddha means, and perhaps we'll draw this to a close because it's going on a bit long, but this is what the Buddha means in saying you know, all compounded things or all compounded phenomena are impermanent, transitory. Strive on.